Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Love for Tennis podcast with me, James Gray of iNews.co.uk. I am, as always, joined by Calvin Betton, our resident tennis coach. Um, but we are a man down this evening. I'm afraid to say that George has got some unfortunate news for you. Hello, Love Tennis podcast listeners. I am speaking to you from bed with my leg raised um, in similar fashion to when Roger Federer managed to injure his knee and was out for six months after uh, bathing his children. I've suffered a similar fate while um, building flat pack furniture as I moved into my new place. So I'm on quite drowsy medication and wasn't sure I could fully contribute to this evening's uh, podcast. I'm sure you're in safe hands with James and Calvin. It's been another superb week with the future of tennis truly arriving. Um, I will be back with you next week, and I'm sure the guys will do a thorough job in taking you through all the action. See you next week. Yes, uh, it's amazing how injury-prone one man can be. Uh, I think what's amazing about George's ability to get injured is it's always different injuries. Um, but this one does actually sound quite painful and quite unfortunate. So um, we, of course, send him our best, um, as I'm sure you will too. So maybe his DMs will be fin- filled with uh, pleasant messages for once rather than the usual abuse that he gets. But Calvin and I will persist without him as best as we can. He's been kind enough to put together the running order for the show, nevertheless. Um, as I'm going to try and always do uh, for the next couple of weeks, I want to talk to you about reviews. Um, some of you have been very kind and left us some great reviews. Uh, I just want to shout out a couple of them uh, tonight. Uh, great. Thanks from MG Tennis 2022 Says, great podcast, funny, good journalistic insight and coaching perspective too. Calvin, especially good. Um, I didn't want to read that last bit, but um, he's honestly, he's like a cat that's got the cream. Uh, and also one from MXCV here. 
Uh, Five Star Tennis Podcast. It's one of my absolute favourites. If you want knowledgeable, honest and passionate discussions about what's going on in the tennis world, then this is the pod for you. James, George and Calvin have it all covered. It's up-to-date tennis news, professionally delivered with some humour thrown in. I just love the Love Tennis Podcast. Um, thank you very much for people who do take the time to leave these. It's obviously it takes time out of your day to do it. And we're really appreciative. Um, I'm asking you to do more. There are a couple of thousand of you now that listen to this podcast every week or most weeks. Uh, and it would be great if some of you could leave us a few more reviews, good ones. I hope five stars, please. It makes a massive difference to the number of people we can reach. That means we can spend more time doing pod things. And that means we can potentially do more pods, more exciting things, go and do a few different things. Um, you may have noticed in the last couple of weeks the sound quality's gone up a bit. That's partly because you've been more involved. We've had more of you listening, and that's allowed us to to invest in a bit of equipment and uh, make a bit of a difference. So please do go and leave those reviews, if, especially if you're an Apple user. That that's pretty much the only one you can actually leave a rating on. Um, so I do appreciate if you take the time to do that. Anyway, on with the podcast. Uh, what a week as well. We've got so much to get through. Uh, we're going to talk about. The new era of women's tennis post-Ash Barty, uh, Iga Shontek leading that up to number one in the world, of course. Um, a run to a final for Naomi Osaka, great to see her back. Carlos Alcaraz, Kasper Ruud, Daniil Medvedev, both injured and potentially banned from Wimbledon. More on that later. Um, and we'll also go around some very good news for the Brits. Uh, Jack Draper winning another title, Cam Norrie into the top 10, Joe Salisbury world number one, Neil Skupski into another 1,000 uh, Masters level final. Uh, we'll talk a bit about Nick Kyrgios as well. I've got lots of four-letter words written about down about there. Uh, team and Vavrinka are back as well. Tennis on Sky Sports. There was even a slap in a Futures event. I mean, honestly, there is, there's, there's nothing you're not going to get on this pod, uh, apart from George, obviously. Uh, Calvin, there really is only one place to start. I know um, we've been accused over the last couple of weeks of being a bit down on women's tennis. We probably can't be down on women's tennis today because... We got the final we wanted, and and for at least the first forty minutes of that final, it was it was the match. Yeah, we I thought it was well. a great event, the women's event. I probably watched more of the women's than the men's, to be honest. I thought, even though Shantek won it and she's brilliant, no doubt. I I really enjoyed watching Osaka again last week. Um, I thought she, I just think she's a superstar. Um, and we had a bit of a debate in our WhatsApp group, and I had a debate with a few other people that. I think she's, if anything, she's she's undermarketed by her people. Um, I know she makes a lot of money in that, but I, I still don't think, judging by, by how good she is at what she does, how she looks and everything, her personality, I, I think that it's just great to have her back. I thought it was a marked difference this week about how she was talking about tennis. You know, we, we've thrown that quote around a lot about her saying, I want to play as few tournaments as possible. Um, and this week it was, you know, she was saying, oh, I'm so happy to be performing well, but I also realised that I can go and work hard and get better and get more results like this. She said that she was really going to have a go at the clay this year, which is great to hear as well. Um, it just felt so different. And, and I, I sent something to both of you earlier in the week when she said that she'd started seeing a therapist. And I think we all said, hang on, Naomi Osaka's not been seeing a therapist, which is kind of crazy, but I often think, you know, one of the hardest things when it comes to solving your mental health is actually getting the right person in the room to do it. Um, and it, it can be one of the, the most difficult admissions to make is that you can't fix it on your own. I guess especially as a tennis player, because to bring it back to tennis, if you've got a problem, yes, you get people in, but they always say to you, you have to do this or you have to do that. You know, you don't solve problems in tennis by just doing it on your, like someone comes in and just gives you like a magic pill. Well, 
unless you're from certain parts of the world. Um, <laughs> but you don't solve problems in tennis like that. You work it out yourself to a large extent, don't you? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I've always been pretty... I don't know whether sceptical is the right word. Um, I've always questioned the use of sports psychologists and that kind of thing. And my my main gripe with them is that is the way of I don't doubt their intelligence. I don't doubt their theories. I've always found a disconnecting in in what they're saying, what they want people to think, and what goes on on the tennis court. And I think that that's been the problem that that tra- actually translating it to the tennis court. And I thought that what one of the things. Sorry, I I would just say that like what she said is she's seeing a therapist. Like I think yeah. this is quite removed from tennis. Yeah. I think this is you know she's got her own personal mental health problems and she's got a professional in to deal with them, which is what you'd do if you had a problem in tennis. But yeah, I'm kind of contradicting myself a bit, but I, I can see that she's at least got to the root of the problem to an extent. I mean, it's impossible to tell, but yeah, I mean th- that's where I was going with it though. I I don't think that, and and I only noticed this last week and mentioned it again in our WhatsApp chat that. She's not, I'm not sure she has mental weakness. I'm not saying for a minute she has a mental weakness off the court, but she doesn't have weaknesses on the court. She's actually very, very good on the court in terms of her sort of resilience, um, her mentality, her responses to setbacks, that kind of thing. Everything that you'd want in terms of body language and that kind of thing, Osaka provides you with. She, if you watch her and you didn't know anything what was going on off the court, it was obviously the incident in Indian Wells where she had a, a couple of issues there. But again, I think that was related to her off-court stuff. Whereas, And it was an off-court trigger, right? Like it wasn't, yeah. the, it wasn't as though she lost a big game and went to pieces. Like something happened, it, 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 it was, something went on in her head and then yeah. things changed. But I also think though that if she wasn't having issues existentially off the court, I don't think she would have responded like that to that incident either. I think that was... I think, you know, I think that maybe it seemed like everything was getting on top of her that week, I think. But, um, yeah, it's, it's not like, say, I guess like Nick Kyrgios, who you could say he has issues both on and off the court. Osaka. And they, see, they seem interconnected. Yeah, I think so. And um, whereas Osaka, like I say, on the court, she's she's normally pretty good. And it's funny because I was talking to a friend of mine last week and it, it's just strange how people think about it. And then he said, like, well, you know, she's not tough enough mentally. Like she's won four slams. She's been number one in the world. Like, like let's get it straight. If you, you don't do that if you're not tough mentally. Like, yeah, if you, and it, it, it's kind of I always think that's a really like troubling way to talk about um like depression, anxiety, and those sorts of things as well. Yeah. Like to create this kind of adversarial thing, like it's you versus the disease. Like it doesn't yeah. work like that. No, I think it's like the one it's it's always like the one when people are seem to grim to topic to talk about when when people are sort of towards the end of their lives and, and someone will go, oh, he's a fighter though. And that would suggest that like anyone who dies isn't a isn't, fighter. Like, yeah, like, exactly. Like, sure about that. Um, but, it's a um, lot of charities talk about it with cancer and stuff. It's like, please stop saying he's yeah. battling cancer. It's like, well, that's not really how it works. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. You just yeah. Sort of get um, ill and that happens. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think that, yeah, she's, she, she, yeah, she's, she's very good. It was just good to see her back and competing and, I hope she plays. Um, I still think I'm not, you know, you, we don't know, do we? She may really get back into the buzz of playing. And I, I've never seen any real reason why she shouldn't be better on the clay. She's not a great mover, but she's not a great mover on the hard courts. And she wins She wins everything on that. It doesn't matter. She just creams the ball, doesn't she? So it, it does, She does remind me a bit of Serena. And I know that she has often tried to play like Serena in, in various ways. And, 
yeah, as you say, Serena wasn't a great mover and still isn't, and never. I don't think ever was a great mover on the clay. No, I, I think in her prime she was. I think she wasn't as good as Venus, but in her prime she could she could move around the court and she had real defensive skill. Osaka's problems actually I've, maybe I've termed it wrong there. Osaka's it's she's not a great mover. She's not a terrible mover, but her defensive skills are really bad. Like she's not, if, if you look when she, she doesn't really have any sort of defensive slice um, that she can take a hand off it. Once you take her out of that, that sort of, and I think that's what Shvontek did. She took her out of the corners, out into the corners and she doesn't really know what to do then. I thought it was, it was a really interesting um, match. As I say, it went to pieces in the second set, you know, Shvontek got all over her serve. Um, incidentally, a couple of stats on uh, Shvontek on the return this year. She's won 54% of return games. She's more likely than not to break any particular service game. And she's also won 44% of first serve return points, both of which I think are tour leading for anyone who's played more than four matches, which, I mean, to say she's in form on on the return is is saying a lot. But to come back to the first set, which I think was more interesting, I I, I thought what was kind of indicative was that Schwantek was clearly trying to go after the Osaka backhand. As you say, she doesn't have much of a defensive slice. And initially, it didn't really break down that much. But when it did, obviously, that was when Shontek got her foot down. It's when she broke. And then kind of the rest is history. Yeah, um, she just, she's just really good, isn't she? Like, you wonder, like, what? I do think, I, to be honest, I did, the problem with Osaka's matches, and somebody made a really good point that something I'd not thought about the other day. Um, I saw it on Twitter where somebody had remarked that it wasn't that great a match. And somebody said like, well, are any of Osaka's matches that great, greater matches? Cause she tends to either she hits clean winners or she misses by a mile and, and there's not much in between. And it's a fair point, isn't it? Like uh, the match in fairness, I did think the match that she had with Anisimova uh, in the Australian open was really good. But I, I'm, it was good from a dramatic point of view. The tennis tends not to be great. I think she's great to watch, but you don't get much variation. She's going to absolutely clobber the ball. And a friend of mine who was at the Australian Open had told me that he'd watched a practice and he said it was unreal how hard she hits the ball. Um, it, it, that match, incidentally, an, another kind of little stat for you. However good or bad it wasn't as a match, it was the WTA's most popular video on YouTube of the year. Um, it, I think this was a bad... This would have been on... Sunday, it had already done 650,000 views. I suspect it's pushing up towards a million by now. I mean, you can't underestimate, irrespective of how good or bad the matches are, you can't underestimate in the week after Ash Barty has just retired how important it is that these two got on court and at least for 45 minutes had a really competitive match. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it, we kind of got there, didn't we? We want, we've been saying on the podcast for a while now that we wanted two of the big names to meet in a big final, and we got that. We didn't quite get the great match that we wanted, so we'll take, you know, one out of two is not bad, and hopefully <laughs> the next Loaf one. didn't say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Hopefully the next one, then um, we can take it, yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and actually, I, a little bit like you, I feel like I've watched more of the women's event probably um, over the the ten days or two weeks of Miami than than the men's event, which I guess is testament partly to the Osaka factor. I mean, just having her back, wanting to watch her play. As you say, she is box office when she hits the ball well. You saw that for a lot. I mean, she absolutely monstered. I think it was um, Danielle Collins in the quarterfinal. She beat her two and one. Um, I thought the Benchich match was great as well. You know, she came from a set down yeah. in on a again. <sighs> 
What was weird about that, it was a great match in terms of drama and ebbs and flows, but it was very windy, and in the end, Osaka dealt with the wind better, and it it, t- it took the edge off it. You know, the, there weren't a lot of great rallies in there. Yeah, well, again, that doesn't make for a pretty match because Bencic, she kind of like does what Jeannie Bouchard used to do, where she's just completely uncompromising in her tactics, and she insists on standing right on top of the baseline. And when you're playing someone like... The weird thing with... The difference between Bouchard and Bencic is Bouchard has no hands, no skills or anything, and that's the only way she really could play. Bencic has got some decent hands. She can play, but she insists on standing right on the base. And number of matches I've watched with with Bencic where you can see she's not going to win the match like 40 minutes in, and she completely refuses to do anything different. She'll just go like, I'm just going to keep on doing this. And, And it's bizarre. (laughs) slightly odd um i also wanted to ask you just sorry dotting around a bit i had written down something i noticed and it was very noticeable um as osaka tried to get on top of the shontek serve and it's something you'll be able to talk about from a tactical perspective you know she she started coming a good three or four feet inside the baseline for second serve and it looked to me like that actually made it harder for her because there was then less time to react to Shontex plus one when she didn't nail the return. And she then actually did what we see a lot of in the men's game at the moment, which is went and sat really deep off the second serve return. Um, do, do you think that was just, she was just trying to mix it up or is what would you advise her to do in that situation? I mean, I think with Osaka, I wouldn't do anything different. I, I didn't really like seeing her do that, to be honest. I thought it was, if you're going back, she's losing one of her main assets, which she can strike the ball so well. And like you say, if, I'm never a huge fan of crowding it, uh, of unless unless you're gonna unless you're relying on timing, where you're gonna time it, and I guess come into the net sometimes. If you've got the brutal power that Osaka has, I'd just stand in the normal return position and just clobber it. I, I think that's where she's gonna get the best the best outcome. I thought Shrontek served very intelligently, though. I mean, I know she's a good server, but I thought she served to the body a lot, which seemed pretty effective. Um, I, I know that you, you say she hasn't got a great kick serve because there aren't a lot of great kick serves in the women's game, but she's got a decent one by comparative standards. And I, I thought that was kind of maybe a more rounded element of her game. I mean, you know, we know she's a good server, but I thought there was a lot more to Shontek that I hadn't necessarily seen maybe last year that I saw this year. Yeah, I mean, I say that. she, The, the women do tend to... They don't. You don't have many great kick serves in the women's game, just through physiology reasons. But they have topspin serves. They can they can serve them in with topspin. But I'm talking one that really kicks like a mule when it hits the ground. You and and just to kind of break that down a little bit, it's it's is it partly because of backbend? It's partly because like women are generally smaller and the net is still the same height. Yeah, it's the back. What you can do with the back bend and the the back hip as well is where the power comes from in the serve. Um, they've done studies on that. That's where the, people think that it comes from the shoulder and the throwing action. It, the real power comes from the hip drive, the, the back hip drive. And I think, again, just females don't have that um, amount of power. Yeah, the back hip's really interesting, actually. Um, in almost every sport, I mean, I've played or dabbled in almost every sport there is one way or another. And so often it comes back to the the hip. I mean, if you've ever anyone who's ever done any boxing, will know that when they're teaching you to throw the right hand, especially, you know, the, the the big punch, the backhand, they talk about it coming from the hip kind of twist and driving through from there. Um, and there's a similar drill. I remember watching Ben Stokes, the cricketer in Nets, hitting these, you know, just hit, range hitting, basically. And he was doing this sort of step-through drill 
where he would hit the ball and as he was hitting it, his back leg would step through past his front leg. And it was basically, I asked him about it afterwards, and he was talking about trying to activate that back hip and drive through. And, that, and that's where so much of his power comes from. And you say, as you say, everyone thinks it's arms and shoulders and the rest of it and so much of it. I kind of find that fascinating that it doesn't matter what sport you're playing. Like it's still the same part of your body that is doing the thing, even though it looks totally different. It's fascinating. Yeah, that, that's it's always a funny one when um, I was joking with Luke, my coach, um, uh, the, yesterday actually about this, how whenever you get an injury, if you get a lower body injury and you go to physio, they always say it's the glute or the hips. Like, <laughs> so you could go, my ankles, I've rolled my ankle and they'll go, it's because your glutes are not activated in it. Sorry. <laughs> it comes from your hip flexor. And and if if it's anything upper body, they'll say shoulder all the time. <laughs> so, I, But I think that must be it. I think it's the, the glutes and the hips are the, the where most of the flexibility most of the power comes from and i think therefore they're more likely to get tight if you're putting that kind of force through them so i think that's it let's talk a little bit about the natural surfaces as george likes to call them um philip gustin mentioned on email this week uh, one of our listeners in las vegas uh, that george just won't let the natural surfaces go he's right um he won't let it go and he never will uh, these are two players, Osaka and Schwantet, who we would expect to see at the French Open, you know, challenging for the title again, quite possibly. Um, Osaka will maybe be seeded by then because she's now back up inside the top 40. Uh, very disingenuously, one of the commentators on Amazon Prime said that she was the lowest ranked player ever to make it into Miami, sec- the final, seconds after she won the semi-final. And it was like... That's not really the big line here, though, is it? Because she's not the world number 77. She happens to be, but she's not. Anyway, hopefully she'll win some points on the clay and will be seeded for the French Open. Otherwise, she's going to be a hell of a floater. Um, Calvin, Iga Shontek has just been sensational pretty much since she lost to Yelena Ostapenko in uh, Dubai. She's beaten everyone in front of her. I think she's won nine consecutive matches in straight sets now with only one tiebreak. Now she goes to the clay where she is a Grand Slam champion. I mean, do you see anyone stopping her? No, she's she's massive favourite, I think. I mean, it's, the conditions will be a bit different from when she won it. Um, it was a really unique French Open when she won it that we'll never get again because it was held it was basically in winter, wasn't it? it was back, <laughs> end of, back end of September, it was freezing cold and damp um, in France. And I think that did suit her at the time, but she can also really play on the clay. Um, so I... You look at you don't see who is going to be her, to be honest. I'd still give, if they play in the US Open, I still think it's 50-50 with her and Osaka. Um, maybe even Osaka's slight favourite once she's got a few more matches under her belt. But on a clay court, you, Sabalenka, I don't see Sabalenka doing anything there. Like um, I mean, Kriz Sikova, if she's fit, she's obviously, you know. Yeah, and um, I've forgotten that. Sakari beat her last year, didn't she? So that that could be one. Um, what do you think if you were going to like, you know, go into your lab and uh, build a player to beat Shiontek at the moment on clay? I mean, what are the kind of what are the keys? Is it just someone who can hang with her, someone who can out hit her? It's got to be somebody who can out hit her. I mean, this is the problem when you get a player like Shiontek who's so complete when they've got the hands and the skills, and they can hit winners as well. They've got big shots as well. You're really looking at you thinking, well, what's the um, what's the antidote to this? Um, so then you're looking at just somebody who can just blow them off court against any, not just in women's tennis, that's men's tennis as well. When you've got somebody who's, who's so skillful as she is and who keeps winning, there's no real weakness in the game. 
I think it's interesting. Um, I saw some people talking about it on Twitter that she's got an zero and three record against Yelena Ostapenko, who's also the last player to beat her, and I think that's actually quite instructive. You know, we all know what Ostapenko is like. Yeah, she will have days when she just murders it, and uh, you know that's. I think that is maybe the the benchmark. Um, I mean, similarly, Danielle Collins beat Shontek in the semi-final of the Australian Open, and she is also someone who, when she has a day, all right, she's not an elite hitter, and Shontek didn't play well against her, but that feels like the blueprint is, you know, she's probably looking to avoid Ostapenko in the early rounds in Paris, put it that way. Yeah, I think 3-0 and is quite quite big as well, isn't it? It's not, um, it's not like she's had one win. They'll start to be some demons there, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting the kind of the places that she's beaten her as well. She obviously beat her earlier in the year in Dubai, as I mentioned. She beat her in Indian Wells in October last year, which again is like quite unusual conditions. And I think there was another one in. Uh, oh, I'm just trying to find it. Tennis abstract is letting me down. Sorry, Jeff. It very rarely lets me down. Oh, she beat her on grass in Birmingham three years ago, which probably isn't a very useful result, but. Um, yeah, Shontek, a very different player at the time, nevertheless. And to kind of come to the other side of the net, you touched on it a bit. I mean, what would you expect from Osaka on clay, you know, looking at, at the French Open? Is she someone who, if she makes the semis, you're not surprised? Um, I wouldn't be surprised, no, because if she carries on playing like she did last week, I don't think the surface will make a whole lot of difference. There's not really any girls who you would say the problem is with the, the girls top 10 the women's top 10 sorry is they're not really clay court specialists either Sabalenka's not Kvitova's not um Danielle Collins is not people like this so you know Krajikova uh you could say is and um Svontek is Sakari can play on the clay as well but there's not many who you'd think right who's definitely beating Osaka on a clay court with Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing. The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
Um, let's switch gears, shall we, and move over to the ATP, where it was a similarly seismic week. No escape from Carlos Alcaraz, as I have now written in three different headlines, and I think it's going to get a bit old quite quickly. Um, he won his first Masters title. He was amazingly the first Spaniard to win in Miami, and didn't we know it, by the way? Um, I did a little bit of research on the stats, because obviously Miami is a, a Spanish-speaking city, essentially. I knew that much. Uh, 75% of Miami residents speak Spanish at home. So that is uh, might explain exactly why Carlos Alcaraz was so popular in the stands. Not a lot of Spanish uh, or native Spaniards there, obviously, or there are a few, but a lot of South Americans um, who have come to America and live in Miami had a lot of South American influence and Mexico as well, of course. There's, I think it's mainly Puerto Ricans in oh, really? Miami. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans in Miami. Um, he's now number number two in the ATP race, Carlos Alcaraz, incredibly. Um, he's up to 11 in the world, just below our own Cameron Norrie. Um, Calvin, I, I look... I'm going to say this straight from from the off. There are some people throwing rumours around about Carlos Alcaraz that are completely unfounded. What cannot be denied is that he's made quite big physical advances and he is now a physical specimen that makes him just as intimidating from that perspective as from a tennis perspective, right? Yeah, he's he's a phenomenal tennis player. That That can't be denied. And when he was 16 and not as big as he is now, he was still a phenomenal tennis player. He was still hitting the ball phenomenally hard. There's there's no question about that. Yeah, he's he's a big lad and he's he's pretty developed. And I think outside of even maybe including NBA basketball, uh, NCAA basketball, I guess it'd be at that age, he's probably the most developed 18-year-old I've ever seen. Um it, into- more than Nadal? Yeah, I'd say so, but I, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, I think at that age, he is. I, I would say so. Um, Nadal was still, he was really good, still a bit, a little bit gangly at seventeen, eighteen. Um, but yeah, the development from this time last year to now, he's he's made some strides. I think it, I think it should also be noted, just to kind of counterpoint that. He won his first tour match against Albert Ramos Vinolas two years ago now, just before lockdown. And like that wasn't like he was a spindly sixteen year old who, you know, picked up a victory on the clay. Like it finished at three in the morning, it was three hours thirty six minutes. Like he I think if we hadn't had lockdown, we'd be talking about Carlos Alcaraz in these terms like eighteen months ago. Like I think he, he I'm not saying he suffered because of it, but it must have come at just the worst possible time. Yeah, it's funny because just before we went into, I remember I was in Tunisia um, in January 2020 um, at a Futures. And um, that was when we'd first heard, well, it was when I first heard about coronavirus. Uh, and a few of us British people there was sort of talking about, you know, have we seen the news? There's this thing in China. But at the same time, the other topic of conversation was there was this Spanish 16-year-old who was destroying good players in futures in Spain, uh, in 15Ks in Spain. And I'm talking good futures players who would win. You'd be expected to win or make finals of 25Ks. And there was this 16-year-old who no one really knew anything about was beating these players one and one, one and two. Um, and we'd not seen it. And then little bits of clips start coming out. And he was creaming his forehand, like absolutely cracking his forehand. And that was when he was 16. 
And I think what's interesting, uh, you know, I as as I've spoken about before, I, I went and interviewed, well, I Zoomed and interviewed Juan Carlos Ferrero about sort of seven or eight months after that in September 2020. And we spoke about him and about Carlos. And one thing, well, one thing he said, which he, he can keep saying if he wants to, but he says every time Carlos does well, people talk too much about him. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm afraid they're going to talk a lot about him now and there's not a lot JCF can do about it. But the other, I said to him, I said, oh, what does he need to improve? Because, you know, we all know about his enormous forehand. And Ferreira said, um, well, actually, I think the forehand can get a bit better. And uh, I think the backhand we need to work on and, um, you know, the serve as well and a bit of physicality. And I was like, right, OK, so everything. And he's like, well, I guess that's what comes from from working with. And, and it can only really explain part of the guy's mentality. Is that he's been working with a world number one, a former world number one um, for, you know, three, four, five years. I mean, Ferreira first saw him, I think, in 2017 and really started working with him. He spent the whole of the first lockdown in Juan Carlos's uh, academy just outside Alicante, which is looks absolutely idyllic. I mean, they've got about 15 courts there on three different surfaces, an outdoor pool, an indoor pool, an orchard, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, so I think you can give him a lot of credit for it. Um, it, it has been fascinating because we've talked about him a lot. It's been particularly interesting because I've always noticed you know, when he's had results or when he's picked up little things. But I was kind of dredging through old tennis forums from like 2019, I think. And people were starting to just, the odd person be like, oh, have you seen this Carlos Alcaraz lad? And it's exactly that, you know, he's 16 years old winning challenger titles, like an absolute, or 17 maybe to win his first challenger, an absolute canter. Um, I mean, I think we've said before he's a multiple Grand Slam winner, Calvin. Are you willing to raise the minimum number of Grand Slams Carlos Alcaraz is going to win? Uh, no, I, I said again, I stand by it. I think he'd have, I think he'll end up having the career that Nadal would have had if he was right-handed, and I've seen nothing to change my mind on that, which makes me think that eight or nine, ten maybe. Uh, I mean, do we see him as a threat at any of the Grand Slams this year? Is that too much too soon? Are we too high? Oh, or one hundred percent. I I'd say so. I'd make him. I don't know if... Is Nadal definitely going to play the French? I've heard nothing to the contrary. I mean, right. you know, it's the only I'd, thing he's going to try and play this year. I'd actually make... I'm thinking about it. I'd make him joint top favourite with Nadal and Djokovic. So more than Zverev? Oh, by a mile. Zverev's in no kind of form. Zverev's all over the show. Heard it here first, joint me, joint favourite Carlos Alcaraz. Yeah, look, the others have got 41 slams between them, so it might be a bit harsh <laughs> in terms of joint, joint top. I'd make him third favourite behind those two, but not far behind. Like, I'd, if, if he plays if he plays Djokovic now, I'd make Djokovic 52% favourite over him. On the basis that Djokovic hasn't played in competitive game of tennis for like three months. Yeah, and in that spell, Alcaraz has just took a massive stride forward. Um, look, he's he's not going to have played anybody like Djokovic. Djokovic is still what he was, and he hasn't played a match for a long time. He's going to give him problems that Kasper Ruud doesn't. Uh, we're going to see Djokovic in action uh, this week, I believe, at the Monte Carlo Masters. I was watching a nice video of him uh, warming up uh, on one of the main courts there. I mean... Monte Carlo just seems like a wonderful place to play tennis, but the the you know the noise like certain courts, the acoustics just right when there's no one in there, and 
just the noise of the ball on clay sounds so good as well you know I, I don't like the way the ball sounds at Wimbledon now like because of the way the grass is and just because of the way the acoustic is and especially when the roof when the roof shut it sounds awful but yeah something about an empty stadium and Novak Djokovic hitting balls on clay just um oh it this, made me feel all romantic this sort of this sort of three-week period is probably I don't think in all of sport there's a better swing that you go from Miami to Monte Carlo <laughs> in terms of places where you'd like to go is there a, is there anywhere like that in sport a swing as good as good as that uh it's hard to think of one i mean the f1 calendar used to have some really cool bits where you'd go from like barcelona to monaco then to maybe like you know a foresty bit of germany which is quite fun but yeah yeah i don't i don't i don't think that really touches it and it's it's actually great because there are i think three yeah there are three masters 1000 level tournaments on clay and yeah. they're all in amazing places monte carlo Madrid and then Rome, which is just my favourite because of that beautiful stadium and yeah, it's yeah, I mean, it's those a cool... cities. Yeah, those cities. You imagine like this. It's almost like the Benoit pair swing. I bet he... <laughs> <laughs> Benoit loves this this sort of five six week period where it's just like Miami, Monte Carlo, Rome, Madrid, like... Paris. <laughs> yeah. And then, like and then he just Hamburg. doesn't. And then he just doesn't play tennis for about. Eight is there like a Hamburg in there as well or something? Just, uh, just yeah. Remember just to really round things out. Um, we got distracted. Cal, uh, Cal, uh, Carlos Tyros was not the only bloke playing on Sunday. Casper uh, Ruud was on the other side of the net. I mean, someone who we're kind of, and we've joked about it before, we're starting to have to take Casper Ruud seriously. I don't, I'm sure other people did as well. I think we always kind of thought, yeah, Casper Ruud, you know, yeah, he might get to a few quarterfinals and stuff, but never is really a genuine threat to kind of the top players. Um, I think we now have to, regard him as that he knocked out Alexander Zverev he knocked out Cameron Norrie um he obviously beat Francisco Cherendolo who was incredibly in the semi-final uh, and he gave a good account of himself in the final as well I thought um Calvin he is now starting to beat you know top 10 players on a semi-regular basis so we have to start taking this lad seriously don't we yeah I think he look he's a legit top 10 in the world player I'd still be surprised if it goes higher than that I don't think he's got a top five in him but um, a legitimate top five. You never know with the rankings, but I don't think he's going to be one of the top, the best five tennis players in the world. But um, he could certainly hang around this sort of 15 to six area for many years to come. And is it not, I mean, I know Nick Kyrgios had a go at him about, you know, stealing points on clay court tournaments in places where people didn't want to go. And in fairness, he has won a title in Buenos Aires this year. And, I think he's had titles in Gestad, but I mean the guy is very, very good on clay. I, I should point out that he, I think in 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 fact I'll tell you exactly since the beginning of 2021, or sorry, in the last 12 months I should say, he's 32 and five on clay. Now, all right, not all of those have been against other guys in the top 10. But there are some good wins in there. He beat Tsitsipas in Madrid, you know, before the French Open when Tsitsipas went deep. Um, he beat, you know, the likes of Fonini, who's very good on clay uh, in Monte Carlo. He won the title in Geneva, in Buenos Aires, in Gestad, in Munich. There's a lot of good results on clay there. So he must be someone who, if you're going to talk about top tier, Nadal, Djokovic, Alcaraz, um, and then this kind of second tier of Tsitsipas and Zverev, given their form, you'd probably put him in that kind of bracket now, wouldn't you? 
Uh, yeah, and as well, there's still the question to be asked as to what do we get team coming back to any sort of level. Um, but yeah, look, we need to stop giving credence to anything that Nick Kyrgios says for starters. <laughs> like, what? He can't win a match on clay. What, what's he? Why, why is clay less of a surface than any other surface? And let's not forget, one of his titles is in Acapulco. Like it's <laughs> you know, it's, it's not Barcelona or Madrid, is it? Like let's be honest. Um, and for somebody like he has, a, bear in mind again that Nick Kyrgios still hasn't made the second week of a Grand Slam in I think six and a half years now. Um, so, like I say, we need to stop giving credence to him. Uh, quite um, the, the the rude game. Um, we got a good look at it on Sunday because you know Alcaraz pushed him all around the court. And and to be fair, as I say, I thought Rude gave a really good account of himself and fought well. Um, it, do we need to kind of stop thinking about these guys who've got these big spinny forehands and and to be fair, a pretty spinny backhand as well? Do we need to stop thinking about them as guys who are only really useful on clay because? especially with the modern hard court, they, they can be very effective there as well. I mean, Nadal's won a few hard court slams. Yeah. Um, there's basically two types of players now, though, in the men's. There's the big guys. Um, I love a bit of pluralization. So your Sitsi passes and your Zverevs of this world. Um, and then there's the guys who, they're not clay cores. They make a lot of balls. And you would say that the boss of that is Djokovic and Nadal. Um, and Kasper Ruud is kind of, a lesser version of that, I'd say. Fair enough. Um, he's also from Scandinavia, and I always think we need more Scandinavian uh, tennis players in the mix because they add a lot to the tour, so to speak. Um, yeah. his, and his dad was a player as well, I think I'm right in saying. Christian Rude, who's still his coach. Yeah, but... I remember his dad. Again, show my age a bit there. Yeah, there's not there's not many from um, Scandinavia. I think that's... They used to, I mean, Sweden obviously used to be a huge country, uh, but Swe- the Swedish government used to fund their tennis and they stopped doing it a few years ago and it's just died a death since then, really. Which is weird, but it's weird because, you know, there are a couple of decent tournaments there as well. There's that tournament in Stockholm in the autumn, the indoors, and, uh, you know... Malmo, there's, there's one, I think. Yes, and am I not am I not right in thinking Gestad is in... I uh, know, it's in Switzerland, isn't it? Yeah. I always get those two confused. Anyway, um, there are some good tournaments there, and I would be well up for more Scandinavian players on the tour. Um, let's move on. We will talk more about the Clay Court Masters tournaments as they come up. Monte Carlo, of course, and then Rome, and uh, then Madrid, I should say, and then Rome. Um, as Calvin says, it is the Bunoir pair swing. I think I might have to coin that. Um, I don't know how much we're going to be seeing of Daniil Medvedev, though. He announced um, on Twitter that he's been carrying a bit of a hernia, a small hernia. He's been playing with a small hernia. Together with my team, I've decided to have a small procedure done to fix the problem. I will likely be out for the next one to two months. We'll work hard to be on court soon. Thanks for all the support. Um, That was posted on the 2nd of April. One to two months would take him, well, if it's two months, right up uh, against the French Open, possibly missing the French Open. Uh, Calvin, we saw what Daniil Medvedev can do on clay, and this is kind of the reverse engineer of what I said earlier about clay and slow hardcore. Um, he, He would have been a relatively serious player there, wouldn't he? Yeah. Um, he, well, last year was a weird one because he went around all clay court season banging on about how much he hated clay. And then I think ended up making quarters of semis of the French. Um, but it's interesting. It always comes back to the hernia. It always cracks me up because there was once a tennis player who I knew who was intellectually challenged. And uh, he, he once told me that he got an injury. I asked him what it was and he told me he'd pulled his hernia. <laughs> 
and that's every time I see hernia, that always comes back to me. Um, I mean, so hernia is a funny thing. It's a sort of, um, it's a, it's like a muscle tear used in the abdomen, right? Like, yeah, it's lower abdomen, like just, um, just sort of right, right at the bottom of your ab, above your hip. Um, yeah, it's it, it's painful. I, I've never done it, but I know people who have. Um, this, I was surprised that to see it was a small hernia. I always thought it was something that you either did. It's it, there was no grey area in it. Yeah, yeah. You sort of ruptured it, or you yeah, have got a hernia. Yeah. Um, yeah, very strange. Um, I mean, it is, and it is a small operation. I mean, it is something you can do keyhole, so you know, it's not a big yeah. surgery. But it, but it's also, you know, it's an area where there's a lot of muscle that you might have to cut through, and I can see that it might cause some problems. Um, well, we wish him well, obviously, and it'd be good to have him back because if he if he were fit, and if Dominic Team were fit, and Stan Wawrinka were fit, we'd have an absolute perler of a French Open on our hands. Um, it could be that none of those three things are true, but uh, yeah, fingers crossed. A little bit more on Team and Favrinka later on. Um, he's still not number one, not number one again as well, and so it probably means that Novak Djokovic is going to be world number one until about September. Which uh, and he may, <laughs> goodness knows how many tournaments he might actually play in that time. It does genuinely raise the possibility that Rafa Nadal could get back to world number one at some point, which. In terms of comebacks, I mean, the Australian Open was big, but if you got to number one, that would be spectacular. Yeah, Djokovic has got... I don't know, it's a weird one with Djokovic. He's, he has got points to defend, but he's also got tournaments where he's not defending much. But Nadal, strangely going into the clay, is not defending a great deal. Exactly. Um, he's Did he win Monte Carlo last year? I, You know what? I don't have his uh, clay court swing from last year up in front of me. but He didn't in... win Madrid because Zverev beat him in Madrid. He's he's only defending semis in Roland Garros. So he got so to the quarter. He got to the quarters of Monte Carlo. Lost uh, to the Rublev, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He obviously won Barcelona, but that's only a five hundred. He got to the quarters in Madrid, and then he won Rome. So he's well for Nadal. He's not defending that many points. I guess the real question is, as we say, he's already not. I think I'm right in saying he's already said he's not going to play Monte Carlo, but he's going to potentially yeah. and possibly not Barcelona. Although that's up in the air because of his recovery from this current rib injury i mean so he's gonna lose 500 points in barcelona maybe but if he goes and plays madrid and rome you know there's there's definitely some uh some forward movement he, could he struggles make in madrid though that's the thing um i don't see him really getting points in madrid i mean he's very well probably win madrid again despite even if he's in no form whatsoever cause he can just hit hit massive serves into the middle of the service box again and at the altitude no one can return them <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, the other big story that actually has just broken today um, from friend of the pod, Simon Briggs, um, reporting in the Daily Telegraph, uh, Wimbledon ready to ban Daniil Medvedev over fears Russian win could boost Vladimir Putin's regime. Um, he writes, the All England Club have been advised their independent status means that they could exert a ban on Russian and Belarusian players failing to denounce Putin and not face any legal repercussions. Um, the point here is basically that other places, because they're not private members clubs or because of their specific status, could face legal challenges uh, from players who say that they're being restricted in their opportunity to earn money. Now, for reasons that are compl- complicated and myriad, and I don't fully understand, because Wimbledon is a private members club, or the All England Club, I should say, is a private members club, it operates in a slightly different legal space. Essentially, they can say to anyone, we don't want you to come in, and, and that's fine, that's um, something that they can do and they reserve the right to do. 
Um, the entry deadline is about six weeks away. I think it's mid-May for Wimbledon. So they are going to have to move in the next month um, if they want to make things clear. Um, just a little bit more from Briggs's uh, piece here. Uh, the sports minister, Nigel Hudson has already suggested that players such as Medvedev or Arena Sabalenka, who's obviously Belarusian, uh, should only be allowed to participate in major sporting events in the UK if they sign an anti-Putin form, with my air quotes around that, whatever that means. Um, essentially, they don't want people celebrating uh, Putin, celebrating Russia or Belarus if they were going to win something. Um, Calvin, I, I'm pretty sure I know that you've got some strong views on this. Yeah, I'm against it. I don't agree with it at, at all. I I can sort of see the argument and I agree that, that you don't want the, it, you being used as propaganda and that kind of thing. But um, apart from anything else, Danny Medvedev, he's not winning Wimbledon anyway. Um, <laughs> that's for starters. Um, and I, Sabalenka's not either. Um, but I, I, tennis is, you, you're not playing for your country. You're not representing your country. For some reason, we always have flags next to the names on the scores and that kind of thing. But you're playing as an individual. There, there's no, there's nothing related to the country on there. He already hasn't got the flag on it. I think it's disgusting that they would ask them to sign any sort of anti-Putin form because one i don't really get that would never get reported in russia anyway if they did that like so the, the people in russia would never hear about that even if they did it and i don't really know what it would achieve anyway but no i i, I still find it difficult to believe that they will do it because where where this thing in ukraine and we don't want to get too much into it could still be going on in a year's time and what are we doing now? We're just saying that they can't play in a year's time as well. Where do you draw the line under it? What What about Russian footballers anywhere around the world? Are we? Are there, no, I guess it's not private members' club, so they can do what they want. But well, yeah, I mean that's the thing, isn't it? And they've banned Russian teams from from sports, of course. I mean, anyone who follows figure skating, as I do very keenly, will know that um, Russian figure skater Kamiya Valieva was back in action recently, but only in an internal Russian event. Um, Russian figure skaters are all banned from international events, uh, such as just just as swimmers are, just as obviously football teams have been banned from from European events. I mean, my, my counter, Calvin, would be to play devil's advocate a little bit that this is this is what happens. This this is what happened in the Cold War to an extent. Although, of course, tennis players, I guess, didn't suffer during the Cold War. I have to defer to your age on that one. Um, but uh, you know, th this is what this is the whole point of embargoes of um, of these sanctions is that it does hit Russia where it hurts and one of the things the Russian regime has done a lot of um, is fund tennis now th that may come in different ways it may come through running tournaments in St Petersburg or in Moscow that more Russian players can get to and more Russian players win prize money and it may be through national academies of which there are plenty um, although we know that a lot of Russians do end up in the US you know for their development. Now, Daniil Medvedev, I don't specifically know his development. I mean, guess he moved to France relatively young, didn't he? Um, I don't know how young he moved when he was there. He'd been there for certainly as long as I can remember. I don't know whether he was there when he was a teenager or what, but um, yeah, look, there's that side of it. There's also the argument of where does the money go? I think that's another one. We still don't know how these Russian players are getting paid. Um, well, the, I, I suppose, that the, I mean, you will know better at kind of the mid-levels, but at the top level, I'm pretty sure Medvedev is resident in Monte Carlo. Yeah, yeah, um, he probably and, is, yeah. And therefore will have, you know, a French bank account that he probably gets paid most prize money into. But yeah, as you say, like, 
you know, the world number 400, you know, yeah. Roman Safiulin, who I think actually is about world number 130 these days. Yeah. You know, do they have overseas bank accounts? Maybe, but yeah, you're, yeah. you're right. It must be challenging for them. Yeah, and also, again, it's the like with the Belarus thing. It's obviously they're a close ally, but where do we draw the line on it? You know, like Hungary are very much pro-Putin. Are we stopping Fugsovich playing as well? That's another one. You know, it's uh, I, I, I just I struggle with it because it is an individual sport, whichever way you look at it. And I, I, I don't. Daniel Medvedev doesn't have any connection at all to Putin. I absolutely no doubt. I spoke to him a little bit at Wimbledon last year. Um, you can't, I didn't ask him how he thought about the war that would be going on in 10 months time, but um, um, I, I find it difficult to believe if he's backing him, but they also can't, re, they can rebut it a little bit, but we know the situation in Russia. They're not going to come out and go, Vladimir Putin needs removing from power because that would cause problems for their families. Yeah, exactly. Or, or really anyone close to them who... It, who it's more like I say, it's more, James, that I I wonder, I don't think... that there's, there's a very good chance this war could still be going on at Wimbledon 2023. And how long do we stop this? And what precedent does it say? Well, what's the point if it's just Wimbledon that does it? That's another thing. If, 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 the, if he just can't play Wimbledon and then they just can't play that and then they're back on the Australian, on, on the American hardcore swing, has anything been achieved there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I suspect that there is governmental pressure involved here. Um, Wimbledon have always said that they will pretty much... Like, for example, uh, a couple of months ago, we were talking about Novak Djokovic potentially not playing Wimbledon and because of his vaccination status. And I spoke to the All England about it, and they said, we will do exactly what the government say is the rules, partly because right. they kind of knew which way the wind was blowing on that, but also because they know which side their bread is buttered and they would much rather have government on side than not. Well, on that basis, then Djokovic, um, Medvedev could probably just make an offer to some Tory MPs or something, couldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> the lawyer quietly sweats in the corner. <laughs> um, yeah, well, also, I mean, you know, setting aside the geopolitics of it, which are complicated and we don't have all the answers, quite like to see Daniil Medvedev at Wimbledon. I'm really interested to see his kind of development on grass. He's, you know, a bit like the clay. He said he can't play on it. And, you know, I know he's not going to win Wimbledon, but he's definitely getting better at it. And the grass is very slow. Uh, <laughs> quite frankly, it's not the grass that it was yeah. 25 years ago. I'm sure he can learn to move in it. I mean, he beat some good players last year. He beat Alcaraz. He beat Marin Cilic. Yeah. He's a good, the best tennis player in the world. <laughs> like, that's the that's the thing you know it's like you can't not be having the best tennis player in the world playing Wimbledon I just think it would be nuts and then you got look you can't just do with him you'd have to take Rublev out Rublev's a top 10 player um, you have to take Hachinov out um, double beached Vera Zvonareva um, yeah. yeah about half the Russian about half the women's tour yeah um, yeah also by the way Serbia are very pro-Russia like Serbia are a big Russian ally. Yeah, yeah, this is the thing. Like you know, you got like India, Turkey, like China. We don't know where they stand. Like what? Where do you draw the line on it? And then you end up. What's the integrity of the tournament then? Say somebody wins it. Say, I don't know. Say Djokovic. Say Djokovic wins it, but he's not world number one by then. Are we? Are we counting that? I mean, it, it's it sort of feels like the Australian Open all all over again after that, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, be interesting to see where the Djokovic fans stand on that, wouldn't it? After their. Uh... 
insistence on asterisks. I'll be honest, Calvin, I'm not that interested in where <laughs> a certain sector of Novak Djokovic fans stand on many things. Let's move on before we get ourselves in any more trouble. Um, some really good British news over the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, Jack Draper cannot stop winning. Uh, his latest title came in Swiss, uh, France, sorry, uh, in Sam Brieuk. Apologies for murdering that pronunciation. Um, he beat Zizou Beggs in the final, 6-2-5-7-6-4. Um, there weren't many names in that tournament I recognise, but he did beat Robin Harser, the Dutch player, in straight sets for five games. Ilya Marchenko in the first round, who obviously um, beat Andy Murray, I think, last year in the Challenger. Um, and Evan Furness, who's got a French flag next to his name, but I think is... Um, is he not ostensibly British? His dad's from Sheffield, yeah. Oh, right, um, okay. That's not far from me, yeah. His dad, his dad is, um, is just British. Evan spends about three to four months of the year over here. Um, nevertheless, yet another great result for Jack Draper, who is just killing challenger level at the moment. Calvin, we talked about how difficult it would be for him to move up the rankings. I mean, I guess it is pretty indicative of that when he's, I think he's going to be, or he's up to one, two, four in the world now. Um, but he's not far off getting main draw into Grand Slams now, which would be massive. Yeah, he's too good for challenges already. That's apt. If you're winning, what's the three or four that he's won now this year? Yeah, yeah. If you're doing that in, it's not even, we were still in March when he won it. So um, if you're doing that just in March, then you're too good for them. He should be playing main tour events. And again, I know he's with IMG and he got a wildcard into Miami. The wildcard should be four people like Jack now at the main tour events. Um, they should be giving him that. That's what they should be for. He's, he's tearing up outside the top 100. He'll beat. I'd say he's playing already somewhere between 80 and 60 in the world, maybe even higher than that. Impressive. Um, he's got a couple of weeks off now um, back in the UK uh, because I'm going to hopefully go up and try and interview him um, in the next couple of weeks. And then I think he's going to head out again and play a couple of challenges. Um, I don't know how much we'll see him on the clay, but you know he doesn't have to pick up that many more points. And especially with the way the world is at the moment, um, to get into the top, what, 108, I think it is, automatic uh, main draw entry, yeah, that is only another 100 points away. So um, I think I'm sort of 65% sure we'll see him at the French Open main draw. I mean, heck, if he goes into French Open qualifiers, you'd back him in most matches in that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's more clay court floaters around, um, and he's got a big serve, and he's a tall lad, and those type of players can come a bit unstuck on a on a clay court, but um, just because movement wise, but yeah, I'd still fancy him to beat most players, to be honest. I watched the final he was in yesterday and I've known this from Jack for a while. He, one thing you got to know about him, he goes on these tears. He's done it at every level where he just reels off wins in tournaments, tournament after tournament. And he seems completely unaffected by when things don't go his way. When I was talking about Kyrgios last week, he just can't cope when things don't go his way. So in the final yesterday, Jack was a set and a break up. Don't know whether he served for the serve for the match or he served at four two maybe I can't remember. Got broke and then got broke again for Bergs to win the set, and he came out straight away and broke him in the first game of the third, um, and then didn't didn't let up from there. He, he's completely unaffected. He's so relentless in in the way that he plays, no matter what the score is. Yeah, serious serious talent. Um, in a week when like you know tennis's future is now. Jack, Jack definitely feels part of it. Um, and he's also left-handed, which, as we often say, is basically cheating. 
Um, which, uh, speaking of which, Cam Norrie's in the top 10 in the world, which I think is probably another thing that we said would never happen. So well done, Cam, for two very firm fingers up to the uh, Love Tennis podcast. If he ever comes on, I'm hoping that he will, we're definitely not going to mention the fact that we said, yeah, top 30, that's your ceiling, mate. We'll, we'll definitely leave that uh, leave that out, and hopefully he wasn't listening back then anyway. But yeah, I mean, many congrats, you know. He is, you know, only the the first top ten player since Andy Murray because yeah, Dan Evans definitely didn't make it there. So um, that's obviously a massive achievement for him, and you know, testament to hard work for him really. I mean, I don't know how long he's going to be there because there's a bloke called Carlos Alcaraz who's only 120 points behind him. Yannick Sinner's also not far off, and and Hubert Hurkacz, who I think is going to have a pretty handy couple of months as well. But you know, Calvin, you, no one can ever take that away from him now. He he can say, "I made the top ten of the in the world." Yeah, he's and he's done it. He's not done it the easy way either, has he? <laughs> done, it, done it because he keeps winning matches. Like he's not done it because you occasionally get these freak incidents where like everyone just drops points at the same time and and he doesn't. And it's not that he just kept on winning matches. And a big thing is that he, I mean, he won Indian Wells. And you thought he's probably going to lose points from that. I know he doesn't actually lose his points from Indian Wells until September from when he won it, but he's already made quite a lot of them back. So he made, did he make quarters? I'm um, uh, just pulling it up. Yeah, he made quarters and lost to Alcaraz. Yeah, so he's one that you think, yeah, he's probably not going to, he's probably going to lose all them. He's not going to lose as many in September as he probably only needs a couple of, you know, a good French maybe, a good. Didn't do amazing at Wimbledon, did he? Lost to Federer, didn't he, last year? Um, I mean, that's the big thing that he's still kind of missing, you know, is, is, and that's, I guess, what makes it kind of even more remarkable that he is top 10 is that they're not, they're not Grand Slam points. Like, you know, that's where you make big strides in the rankings. And, you know, Cam's never been past the third round of a Grand Slam. No, but the thing, what he's got in his favour now is because if he, well, he'll hold on to that ranking for a while now that um, he's not going to, he's not had great draws in slams. He keeps getting Federer. He seems to play Nadal about twice a year in slams, doesn't he? So, yeah, he played um, in the French last year. Yeah. So he, he's not going to play any of those guys until he's going to have guys lower down for the first four rounds. Yeah, because he, so he's now into that, as I, I always get confused about Grand Slam draws, but he's in that third bracket of seeds, right? Like um, yeah. the top four are pretty much set where they go and then five through eight kind of go into certain slots. And yeah, then yeah. the next bracket, it, you know, it gets chopped up. So yes, you you, you do get to avoid, a, oh, you get to avoid the top four guys until the fourth round, I think. So, the top eight, because um, you can't play somebody else. Any Anyone in the top 16, he can't play until the fourth round. Yeah. Yeah, well, fingers crossed he um, picks up some decent draws. Um, one thing we know, uh, oh, and I absolutely should mention, and I almost forgot, which would have been awful, um, Joe Salisbury, world number one doubles player. Um, a fabulous achievement. Um, 29 years old, so again, another guy who's done it the hard way. Um, I hope you've all read, and if you haven't, head over to my Twitter, um, something I wrote over the weekend uh, about Joe's kind of rise to the top, speaking to Louis Caillet, who is, of course, the... Um, the doubles guru at uh, at the LTA, who I know Calvin spent some time on court with today. A lot um, of time. <laughs> plenty of time, yes. Louis um, took up plenty of my time on Friday as well. So, you know, he's, uh, time management maybe not his skill, but doubles tennis certainly is. Um, and he's worked very hard with Joe, and Joe's worked very hard with him uh, to get to number one, which is a, a brilliant testament. Calvin, you, you've hit with Joe and you know Joe well. Um, what is it that kind of sets him apart? I mean, how has he become world number one? Um, 
I mean, he's a phenomenal athlete. I found that strange when Louis said in your piece that um, he didn't think he was very athletic. He, he's a phenomenal athlete. Um, but I don't know whether that's developed. I don't remember too much of Joe when he was younger, so I don't know whether that's developed recently. But yeah, he's. I think I think that, and I didn't include the full quote because you never really necessarily can. But I think what what he was saying was that when he came on court with him at first, Joe looked like an athletic guy, but didn't do athletic things, which I think is very interesting. And I, he I obviously he of... had been ill a lot. You know, he had glandular fever, which kind of. I think stymied his singles career altogether. It's kind of how he ended up in doubles, right? Yeah, I think maybe I, I know what Louis means there. He's he means I, what I'm saying. Why is he so good? He's an athlete, whereas Louis counts things as being athletic, like how low you get in the net position and that kind of thing. So he specifically um, that, said he looked very upright. Yeah, yeah, that's what he'll mean by being athletic. Um, so yeah, but he's got he's got a good serve. Um, he's got a freakishly big wingspan. So when people talk about poaching and Louis British double system is based on covering space, um, covering territory, Joe can cover more territory than most people because of the size of his wingspan. He's also got, and this is absolutely no discredit to Joe. He's got a phenomenal doubles partner in Rajiv Ram. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and actually Rajiv Ram would also be world number one, um, but for the fact that Joe played one two fifty with Neil Skupski last year as preparation for the Davis Cup, and Rajiv went off and did the same thing with Jack Sock, and um, I think Jack Sock pulled out injured, and um, Joe and Neil went and won San Diego. So that's the only reason that Joe's number one on his own. And um, I know that within the team that they've kind of all privately agreed that Rajiv is world number one as well. But um, only jo- only Joe can say it officially, which makes me laugh. And and they've not Mate um, Pavic and Nikola Mektic um, off the top, which is. Uh, difficulty with that now for Rajiv is it's almost impossible for him ever to get to world number one because Joe's always going to have whatever he wins Joe's going to win as well so. unless they just keep winning everything for another year until that San Diego result yeah. falls off unless he could like really throw like it might almost be like a wrestling heel turn where just before a tournament he'll tell Joe he's not playing with him he's playing with Neil Skupski or someone like that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I mean Joe's, Joe's list of achievements we don't have enough time to list them all but there are plenty of them. Um, he won men's doubles titles, a Grand Slam title last year at the US Open. Um, he won mixed doubles at the French and the US with Desiree Krychek. He didn't win Wimbledon. Um, he played with Harriet Dart uh, because he said he wanted to play with a British player at Wimbledon. They got to the final and they lost to Desiree Krychek and Neil Skupski, um, which, I mean, heck, I, I, I was DMing um, on Instagram with Desiree Krychek this week and she was desperate to talk to me about Joe Salisbury. We couldn't quite get timings matched up but she's a hell of a doubles player as well so I always think that's there are two skills in doubles right being really good at doubles and then picking a really good partner uh it feels like an important skill yeah it was interesting it's not even just a really good partner it is but then it's interesting again what Louis said in your piece James about that that Rajiv being the emotional leader of 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 the um of the team and I think that's important you need somebody to drive it um, and most some people are introverts and I think Joe is a bit more introverted and some people are energetic and the thing with well, again what Louis is insistent on is if you notice the British players one thing you'll notice is and it seems a small thing but they they always discuss the next point tactic at the baseline so he likes the net player to come back to sort of sprint back um, discuss tactics and then bounce back up to the net whereas you see a lot of other teams just kind of discussing it in the middle on the service line but Again, it's all about energy and the image that you portray to the other team. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think I hadn't really appreciated until I spoke to a few people about Louis. Kind of, he's not just a doubles tactician, which is what I've always heard about him. Like he's no. very interested in the technical stuff, in the psychological stuff, in the mental stuff. And oh, he's he's probably in terms of technique, he's probably the best tennis coach in the world. Um, in terms of what he can do on technique and that kind of thing, he just happens to also be very good at, at doubles. And and doubles for anyone who doesn't know it, it it's there's just it's less random than singles. In singles, there's there's always in any one position there's. 60 or 80 shots that a person could play whereas in doubles it's almost like it's kind of a bit like football and basketball if this happens then this is most likely to happen back um so you can predict it more therefore you can set your traps you can set your tactics more to do that we are swiftly running out of time um which means we're not we don't have time for a full rant on Kyrgios, which maybe is for the best because um we've all got one in our locker uh, and it might be something that we can probably bring it back i feel like nick might lose his temper at some point um he, they all uh, atp players have been sent a warning by uh, the atp head honcho andrea gudenzi um to basically stop having big tantrums um a la zverev um jensen brooksby who had to apologize after a Racket nearly hit a ball boy, or maybe even did hit a ball boy. Um, Nick Kyrgios obviously uh, had an enormous falling out with Carlos Bernardes, um, which none of us liked. That's that's probably all I need to say. We would like to say more. Uh, a few other quick things that I mentioned earlier in the show. Dominic Team is back. Played in Marbella. He lost in straight sets to Pedro Cachin, um, who I don't know a huge amount about, but um, I think probably the result a bit irrelevant there. Calvin, just quickly, you know, he's... Well, he was back on court and then he got COVID, so he's not having a great run of luck. Yeah, um, yeah, I wouldn't read too much into it. He's, um, I think the main thing for team is if team comes back fit, he'll be back as one of the top players in the world. Um, if he sort his physical problems, I've no, no question about that. Yeah, and he, it's his first match in in nine months, so probably just good to see him playing. Uh, another guy everyone will have been delighted to see playing this week again in Marbella was Stan Wawrinka. Um, he lost in straight sets to Elias Ima, uh, but interesting that he also played doubles and he won. They him and Pablo Andujar won a match in doubles and then lost to the number one seeds in the quarterfinals. So maybe a little bit more promising there. Um, I spoke to uh, Stan's agent uh, earlier this week, and certainly they've been pretty optimistic for a while that this is a genuine comeback i mean similarly calvin the guy's 37 i mean he must have such appetite for this game yeah <laughs> no doubt yeah he's he's had such a strange career i stand though like he's going to finish up with the same amount of slams as andy murray but not a lot else either <laughs> like where you look at the rest and stan said that himself when somebody said oh he's in the same band as murray Murray's won just a cartload of Master Series on top, and Stan hasn't. And still, he's the guy who Novak Djokovic doesn't want to see anywhere near him in a Grand Slam draw. Um, more so than Federer, more so than Nadal. Um, he doesn't want to see Stan Wawrinka near him. Um, and he's won the slams. He's won. He's won them against. Generally, when play when when those randomers tend to, he's not a randomer, but when. When the favourites don't win slams, it tends to be because some the, the top seeds have all been knocked out by someone else and the draw opens up. Stands three slams. He beats the best players in the world. In them. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't mess around. Incredibly, Stan Wawrinka has 16 career singles titles. Um, Andy Murray has 46. Uh, yeah. But he's also, Stan Wawrinka is also $34 million to the good. So he, he can't say he's had a bad career. And yeah. Heck, I mean, we'd love to have him back at the French Open fighting fit. Um, and, you know, we might even have that. So good luck to him. 
Um, people in the UK will be interested to hear that Sky Sports uh, are going to come back into the tennis market. It looks like they're going to outbid Amazon for the US Open rights from 2023, uh, 2023. And then from the end of that year, the ATP and WTA rights are up for grabs. Um, I don't know how much you've got to say to, about that, Calvin. I know you, you know a lot of people in the industry who might have been interested to hear it. Uh, it suggests to me that they've seen Raducanu and got we want a piece of that pie. Yeah, I hope they do get it. Amazon put a good product on, to be fair. Um, and I think especially in Miami last week, they've got, um, you know, it's 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 good that you can select the matches. That's one problem Sky's going to have. Um, how are they going to go about that? They, gonna, they don't want to take a step back. So if on Amazon, you can watch any of the courts. My only issue with Amazon is you're losing the sort of channel flicking um, watcher who's like, they don't know what they want to watch. And I do that a lot of the time. I'll most every day twice a day i'll i'll start on sky sports one and just go up the sports channels until i find something i want to watch it's also difficult it, it's not difficult it's impossible if you want if you're watching tennis and say football and the cricket and you want to flick between the, the two or three you can't do that because you've got to load the menus and everything and yeah, there's definitely lessons to be learnt for um for any tennis broadcaster from what Amazon have done. Look, don't get me I'm I'm with you, Calvin. I think it's a great product and actually the I think the broadcast is pretty slick and you know, we have our own thoughts on certain commentators, but for the for the most part the pundits and the, the talk about tennis is actually pretty good. Um, and, you know, they got lucky with Raducanu, but I thought they did a great job of it. Well, t- tennis is a bit different to cricket in that because cricket, the, the, the commentators and the pundits tend to stay with the channel they're on. But when they, when it goes back to Sky, all those pundits and commentators will just go back to Sky because that's what tennis does. <laughs> <laughs> they don't they don't have their own channels. Oh, don't worry, Calvin. There'll be some blokes called Barry involved. I'm absolutely sure of it. Yeah, lots of them. Um, and just finally, we, we promised we wouldn't talk about the slap again. There's been another slap. Um, Ghanaian junior tennis player Rafael G. Ankra uh, walked to the net having knocked out the uh, number one seed from France, Michael Kouami, uh, shook his hand and was then slapped um, as he shook his hand, pretty much. It's all the context I have from the uh, ongoing ITF World Tennis J5 event in Accra. Um, is that the most violent thing you've ever seen at a juniors event, Calvin? Uh, yeah, I've never seen anyone get slapped at the net, yeah. Um, I've seen somebody get a punched at a men's futures. Um <laughs> Why? Um, I don't know. It, it might have been the partner of a player who I coach. Who after a match, I think he, I don't. He either punched the opponent or his dad. Um, and <laughs> he, oh, even told us literally about twenty seconds before they were going on for doubles. I might be in trouble here, and we said why, and he goes, "I've just hit my opponent." <laughs> did I mean? Did he? Did he get DQ'd mid doubles match? He got a code violation on the second point of the match. <laughs> I think he hit a double fault and then he just wellied a ball out. So there was some, some tension in the air. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, there will be tension in the air next week because George is going to have to fight his way back onto the team sheet through what we believe is ACL and MCL injury. Um, so best of luck to him. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, please do head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever they call it now and leave us a rating. We, we really appreciate it and it helps shove one or two slightly negative reviews down the list. Of All that remains for me to say is thank you very much for listening and make sure you come back next week.
Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.